0: What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My
1: grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail.
2: This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Recently, the popularity of founding
0: father Alexander Hamilton has been on the rise, It most likely has something to do with the huge Broadway musicals' popularity. But along with that, it's likely that the biography of this great man is just so interesting, it's bound to capture our attention. Part of the intrigue that makes Hamilton's life so interesting has to do with his interactions with Aaron Burr. At best, they were political adversaries. At worst, their contentious relationship was disastrous, since it ultimately leads to Hamilton's death. It's clear that adults have been gobbling up Hamilton information, but what about children who may just be a little too young for Hamilton the Musical? Well, never fear, for here at Rachel's World, we can offer you two books that may be just right to fill the gap for those who want to know more about Hamilton and Burr so as to tide them over until they come of age to see the musical. For second to fourth graders, check out. Aaron and Alexander, the most famous duel in American history, written and illustrated by Don Brown. This picture book outlines the similarities of the two men who were both orphaned at a young age, fought for America in the war, and both served in political office. It continues to chronicle their interactions as adults and the events that lead up to their infamous duel. Since this is a picture book, the information is direct and simplified, but gives us just enough to fill readers in on the major events. The illustrations in this book also provide some great historical context to the story. For older readers from fifth grade and up, check out The Duel The Parallel Lives of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr by Judith St. George. This chapter book offers a little more in-depth look at the two men, and like the picture book, it offers insight into just how similar these two men's lives were. This book features a chronological format that is easy to read and very informative. It's also important to note that St. George does not pull any punches here and speaks frankly but fairly on illegitimacy, infidelity, war, and political posturing. So if the Hamilton and Burr feud is a topic of conversation in your house, why not check out these two great books on this recommendation from Rachel's World.
2: What on earth did kids do in their free time in the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s without cell phones, tablets, social media, or computer games? Anyone remember that old-fashioned reality that virtual reality tries to imitate? You know, like hide-and-seek or freeze tag, riding bikes, fishing, hula hoops... Oh, and television or radio? The world has changed, it seems, in big ways. Our first guest today, author, artist, and video game director Dustin Hansen, talks to Rachel about the brave new world we've entered. Hansen is author of the book Game On, Video Game History from Pong and Pac-Man to Mario, Minecraft, and more. He's been creating media for the middle-grade audience for more than 20 years. Dustin Hansen's passion for crafting meaningful stories has led him into work as a creative director for some of the biggest video game products on the planet, including Madden Football, The Sims, and Hasbro's most popular franchises. His debut fiction series, Microsource, appeared in January 2017. Here's Rachel and Dustin Hansen. We're in studio with Dustin today. Welcome!
3: Thank you.
0: I am so excited to talk to you today because I think this is a fun topic, but also a really relevant and timely topic. You are an expert on video game history and video gaming and have been in the industry for a really long time. And I think this is going to be wonderful for our listening audience to to share kind of your expertise in this, this kind of wonderful realm that maybe a lot of people don't completely understand. So maybe to start off, tell us a little bit about your background in the video game industry.
3: Sure. I um, The first video game I ever remembered playing was Space Invaders ah. in, in 1978. I remember exactly where I played it. My parents were both musicians um, and worked in the pit for musicals um, at a small college called Snow College in Ephraim, Utah. And so my sisters and I were kind of latchkey kids while they were playing in the pit. We would kind of play around this place called the union building. And one day the space invaders cabinet showed up and that was it. Like I was completely addicted to that game at that point. And I remember trading in lunch money. This is a terrible story. When I I told my mom, she was disappointed, but I remember trading my lunch money in for quarters so that I could go and drop quarters in this space invaders machine. So I, I, I was a game player first I mean that's really where this passion kind of started for me and I, I fell in love with playing games. And it kind of went from there. I I have always been an artist. That's really what my what I've done the most in the games industry is the visual art side, et cetera. And now I'm currently working on a VR project with one of the most like crazy out there bizarre groups, a little company in Utah called The Void VR so i'm doing I've gone everywhere from dreaming that someday I'd be able to be inside a video game to making video games to now actually making games where you get to be inside the video game, so it's kind of a strange it's it's been interesting for me to see in twenty five years how much things have changed and how rapid and how immersive you know, it really has become.
0: Well, I I really love that context because you are an expert in this, right? I love that you've had this vast experience. And one of the things that you talk about, particularly in your book, Game On, is this history of video gaming. So why do you think it's important that we understand this kind of contextual history to how we started and where we are today in the video game industry?
3: I think part of that comes down to the fact that it's always good to know the origin story of anything, right? So that's, that to me has always been interesting, you know, where did things start? Um, but I think that the other part of that is that, you know, I, I read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of history books. It's, it's a passion of mine, something I've really enjoyed. But rarely do you get to read an entire history of something that's happened in the last 30 years, right? The original creators, the people who kind of started this whole mess that we're in are still alive. And guys like Nolan Bushnell, who studied at the University of Utah, worked at a local amusement park called Lagoon um, in the arcade there before when those arcades were more like rolling balls into a hole, and you know these very mechanical things saw a real need for entertainment in the digital world and he started this crazy revolution that happened thirty years ago and created a game called Pong that is every bit as relevant and important to the, the type of gaming that we play today as it was 30 years ago. And guys like Nolan Bushnell are still traveling around and attending cons and talking to people about the future of video games. So it's it's a really interesting thing because we get to see the entire history of an entertainment industry and really of a cultural phenomenon happening in 30 years.
0: I love that sense. And particularly, I think this industry speaks to a certain type of individual, maybe more universally than it did back in the Pong days. But (laughs) what, what is it about this industry or about these games that you really think attracts the audience that it does? What what are they doing? Is there some kind of fundamental need that they're filling? Or is there some kind of you know, psychological connection that you feel that these these wonderful games have kind of filled in our culture and society?
3: Boy, I'm going to take notes for writing another book. There
0: we go. Let's That's do, such do a it. Good,
3: <laughs> great question. You know, it's interesting. And I have thought a lot about that topic in particular, um, because I think it's changed. I really do. I think it's changed and it's grown. I I do know that the early days of video games, really were the hyper-competitive. It was, I'm going to beat my friends. I'm going to beat my personal high score. It's, it really was very score-driven, um, and it, it became kind of a, a term we called Twitch gaming, right? It, the games almost became, at some level, uh, an intellectual athletic pursuit, which is kind of bizarre, um, but really what it did is it took a lot of people who maybe weren't good at regular athletic pursuits. And more traditional ways of doing competition and gave them something that was very um, personal and very addicting and gave them a a bar to fill. And when you give someone a bar to fill, they're going to fill it. And and so it really spoke to a very unique person, the gamer, right? And a lot of the early games were really geared towards that, right? Like give everyone a score, publish those scores, put the high score Right. Yeah. Back to Space Invaders. Yeah, first, Space the, the first, high score, if you want yeah. to beat that high score. <laughs> yeah. right. you could be able to type your three initials in and, and for you know, a few days, if you're lucky for a week, you're the guy with the high score. Um, they became real bragging rights. Those things have really changed, um, especially in the last 15 years, where games became something different. They became, instead of being competitive, they moved more into a social opportunity. And so when you started seeing these – they call them massive multiplayer on-game games, uh, these big massive games where people get together in big groups and they play together and they, they do quests together and it became a very community-oriented endeavor. Very different, right? Those things have really changed. And then after that, a a whole new revolution came out during when the Wii came out where people were like, I don't really want to compete with somebody who I'll never see or I don't want to play a game with someone I'll never meet. I do want to sit on the couch with my grandparents and play a bowling game, right? That was a very – once again, a very different thing. So we start to see that games which started in this kind of small, maybe a little bit more reclusive gamer has really changed to be something that was a group of reclusive gamers – to now, it's it's not embarrassing to admit you're a gamer. <laughs> Matter of fact, you kind of have to admit that you're a gamer. You kind of wear it like a badge of honor. Um, and I think that definition of what a gamer is has really changed in those 30 years. And it's it's been a very interesting cultural phenomenon to me to see that. And to the point now where a lot of the things that we talk about, a lot of our current vernacular actually comes from gaming. Um, and even the way we consume media, it comes from gaming. So a good example of that um, is – um, I remember – well, I, I know the game. It was uh, a Wind Waker a Zelda game that came out on the GameCube many, many years ago. Um, still to this day one of my favorite games. Um, my sons were both playing pretty young. One was probably six or seven. One was nine. Um, they were playing the game and they, when they got the game, they binged it. It was like 23 hours. They were pretty proud of themselves. They beat it in less of, less than a day. And I remember my wife and I having a discussion of who can sit and can consume – any one piece of media for 23 hours straight without a break, right? Fast forward 15 years later, that's how we consume media. That's how we, we wait for the Netflix season to be dropped so we can watch the whole season because I don't want to watch Walking Dead in little pieces. I want the whole thing all at once. And so some of those, those things have really grown from that culture of, of gaming.
0: I really love that sense of how these things build on other things, and they really impact our culture and the way we look at things in such a fundamental way. I think a lot of people who are kind of gaming naysayers who say, oh, you know, gaming, they spend too much time on that, particularly when we talk about kids and gaming. Yeah. You say, how in the world did you let your children sit for 23 hours? <laughs> you know, there, there are those people that are kind of naysayers about it, but I, I don't think they completely realize... the the power that this kind of immersive experience allows people to bring. So what might you say to maybe one of those naysayers who who isn't quite involved in this culture and this world and how it impacts all of our other cultural aspects?
3: <laughs> Believe it or not, I've heard that from people who've purchased my book. I, I remember uh, one of the first people that I remember buying my book um, – who talked to me about it said, I'm so excited to have this book because maybe it will keep my kid from playing games for a little while. <laughs> I said, don't let my book interrupt his gameplay. Like he will never read again, right? Um, it, it is, it is a, an interesting thing, right? Because it does become part of a lot of these – especially young players. It does become a, a really great way for them to, for one thing, learn how to problem solve It's it's a very interactive problem solving tool, which is something that boy we need right now, right? Like we need young problem solvers. Teaches them how to do creative expression. Teaches them how to do storytelling. Minecraft, believe it or not, is a storytelling game, right? But it's you creating your own story. So what I've tried to encourage people is to say, find out why they're playing the game. And I've encouraged especially parents to talk to your kids, like, why do you play this game? and to really talk about it and i think generally people are surprised in what people are trying to get from those games they're very rarely that competitive na- you know nature anymore usually it's a lot more complex and that problem solving mindset really becomes a very a very important thing in child development like learning how to problem solve really does transfer into all different kinds of neat and wonderful things
0: that's a wonderful note to end on thank you so much Dustin for for opening this world to us and helping us see that it's a lot more complex and intricate than than maybe some people thought
2: that it was. Thank you. Author and video game director Dustin Hansen talking to Rachel about the history of video games that he chronicles in his book Game On! Video Game History from Pong and Pac-Man to Mario, Minecraft, and more. Next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel welcomes author and educator Ruth Cullum, They'll explore the importance of using certain texts, which Colum calls mentor texts, in helping our children become writers. Colum has written over 40 books for educators around the globe. A special focus of her work entails the concepts of writing traits and writing from reading, which she'll shed some light on for us. Colum conducts professional development for schools and districts and was the 2016 department editor for the professional journal Reading Teacher. Here's Ruth Cullum and Rachel.
0: We're on the phone today with Ruth. Welcome,
4: Ruth. Hi.
0: I am so excited to talk to you today and share with our listeners your expertise, particularly in about this wonderful connection between writing and reading and how we can use both of those things to help our students become better at this important part of literacy, which is writing. Let's start out today by Talking about mentor texts. So, what is it about texts or books or other types of things that we would work with that really can help students become better writers?
4: Well, I think every one of the books that kids read or every text that they run across has good and bad qualities to it. And if they can learn to name those and they can start to really respond to texts in a way that writers would, it, it makes them stronger readers and writers. So the first thing I always tell people is let kids read the text and just enjoy it, appreciate it, decide for themselves if this is a text they would like to do more with. Because we don't all like the same books, you know. And I think every time we're reading something, we want to know what's next. And sometimes we stop kids too much in their reading and, and immediately want to go to teaching opportunities. So let them read it. Let them read it, talk about it, enjoy it from a reading standpoint. So
0: what, particularly when we're looking at mentor texts for extraordinary writing,
4: what kinds of things should we be looking for? This is one of the more challenging parts, to be honest with you, because I think we all have books, short books, long books, you know, magazine articles, journal articles that we think are well-written, but would we agree with the next person? Would the other, another person agree with us if this was a particularly well-written text? So that's how the work that I do with the traits of writing kind of begins to seem into this thinking. So when we're picking a mentor text, it's important to, to read like a writer instead of reading like a reader. So on that second read and that third read, you say to yourself, hmm how is it organized, or how is the language used and the different words in there. We we really carve out these different traits and dive into text with one or more in mind. That helps the picking go a little smoother and uh, allows you to kind of go between books and resource materials with different things in mind.
0: Looking at it from that way, I think that's interesting because we may not actually be looking for only examples of extraordinary writing, right. we may be looking for the corollary as well, or it really doesn't what? matter how we exactly. determine it, right? We can, we can look at it and analyze it on both ends of the spectrum. So in that yes. case, any text could be a mentor text.
4: Really and truly, it can be. Um, what I urge teachers to do and parents to do too is find the text that they love, text that they they love to come back to over and over there's a reason you know it's usually because of what it's about but then it's usually very well written and so you can start to break down what it is about the book that draws you in and keeps you wanting to read it over and over again and so we can come at it that way too you can also I know this sounds like a paradox but you can take a text that you don't think is very well written And ask students or or children, what is it about this? is kind of boring or you're just not that interested. What will we have to do to it to make it be more interesting and enjoyable? Because we need to show them that everybody, you know, can do this kind of everyday writing. It's the books we love the most that we're trying to get them to reach and stretch to that level of writing over time.
0: I love this context of the mentor text bringing this kind of critical analysis, not only of existing writing, but also of our own writing kind of in the mix. Because I think that's Mm -hmm. an important aspect of writing, particularly for children that I think we sometimes gloss over or don't talk about in enough
4: depth. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would completely. You know, when uh, kids are reading, they have Many children have adopted some very sophisticated strategies to hide the fact that they don't get it. With writing, there is no way to hide that. What they put down on paper is what they know how to do. So sometimes we realize, sometimes we don't. You know, we do lots of things to vary it for kids so they don't come to the task feeling kind of like negative. But it's a powerful process, and the mentor text just really support it all the way along the way. If you can look at someone else's process and what they did and the decisions they probably made as they went along, they can infer how they got from an idea into this finished text. And that's why I like to use picture books so much, even with older readers and writers, uh, because they're short. And a lot can be done with a short text.
0: Could, could you give us an example of that? Maybe a, a lesson that you've done with a picture book of of how you would use that in your classroom to kind of develop maybe one of these traits of writing?
4: Oh, sure. Well, I've just been collecting some new books. I have this terrible habit of going on Amazon and, and not leaving soon enough. <laughs> Don't we all have <laughs> my, that habit? <laughs> my whole um, budget goes into buying books, but I love that part anyway. So it's good. Um, I just got a book called One Day, The End, and someone recommended it to me. And it's for, well, it could be for any age, but I think it's really geared for younger writers, probably primary to early elementary. And it's, it just goes, um, each two-page spread kind of gives you the start of a story or an idea, and then the end. So like at the beginning, it says, one day I went to school, I came home, the end. And so what the kids would be invited to do is work with the middle. There's a beginning, there's an ending. What goes in the middle? What could possibly go in the middle? So they're developing skills to elaborate and use details. Um, The next page goes on to say, one day I lost my dog. And then you turn the page, it says, I found him, the end. And so lots of opportunities to discuss, to talk, to to share ideas of what could have happened between losing the dog and finding the dog. And it it just begs for kids to write the middle of the story on their own. And um, hopefully they will.
0: Well, I do. I want to start writing those stories. <laughs> they sound exciting. No, they sound really fun. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, they, they do. <laughs> that 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 is a really great example of of how we can use this kind of technique, particularly in the classroom. But what right. recommendation would you have, maybe for parents or other concerned adults out there who aren't teachers who may want right, to take this right. idea of mentor text maybe into the home?
4: You know, I I always recommend that parents read to their kids, no matter how old they are. And even as they get up in the middle school and high school, find a text they can share together, read it together, talk about it. It's just so important to do this work together. But I think if you're thinking about developing particular skills, then whatever mentor text you would read to kids or share with kids at any age, uh, They should just share it and read it and enjoy it and then have a conversation about what about the book or the idea really struck them. And they can start gathering things from work or from, you know, community kinds of events. The big thing I think with parents is to engage their kids in literacy activities It don't have to be school activities. Just talking about reading and talking about writing makes a big difference in how important kids think it is.
0: That is such a simple way to put it, Ruth, and a beautiful way to end today. Thank you so much for all you do to champion the cause of literacy for children. We really
2: do need more people in the world like you. Oh, that's very sweet. I really appreciate it. Educator and writer Ruth Cullum talking about how we can use books and other texts with our children along their road to becoming writers. We finish up the show with David Barney, professor of physical education at BYU, who talks about the positive effects that music has in the classroom and elsewhere. He cites studies that have been done in school settings that substantiate this, where music was combined with physical activity. David Barney is a member of the teacher education department at BYU. He has taught at Oklahoma State University, North Dakota State University, and in public schools in Utah and Florida. Here is David Barney with Rachel.
0: What is good practice in a physical education classroom and what should we as parents know to help engage that way? So I know you did one study about music Uh in PE. So let's start there. What role does music play in a PE
1: class? Um, In my opinion, it plays a big part it is such a, a tool, such a tool, a great tool, that I, um, that I think a lot of teachers, many teachers use music, but there are quite a few that don't. Uh, and not that the music is going to be the, the teacher or the crutch, but it is, it is an aid that, that the kids just love, and they respond so favorably. We've done a number of studies. We, we did a study with college-age kids that, that, as they work out, they're listening to their iPods or MP3 players. <laughs> I don't know, if I know the, the, the vernacular, but anyway, uh, and we asked them. We said, "Hey, you know, what are you listening to?" Well, I listen to hip hop and rock and country, and I mean, they list off a bunch of things. Does it help you? And they go, "Well, it, it makes me feel like I'm working harder and longer." And thinking that's that's good, you know. Um, they said that they use it uh, to like walk or run, lift weights. Um, but they, but, but we found that. In their minds, they feel like they're working harder. And they, and they found that they're working longer. A lot of these kids said, yeah, I'm coming in here for a half five hour, 45 minutes. And then end up staying an hour, an hour and a half. And they feel like it's because of the music. Another study we did with music was with elementary age students. We had um, third, fourth, and fifth graders. Uh, we had them participate in a couple lessons in walking, walking lessons. So they were doing walking activities. And I think the walking lessons did not have music. But then they had Frisbee activities, and uh, we had the, the, the music on during the Frisbee activities. Well, we found that the students, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to retract here for a second. We had music in both lessons, in w- one lesson for walking and one music in the, the, the walking and the Frisbee, and then one without, and one without music in the Frisbee and the walking. Anyway, we found in both those lessons with music, these kids took about three to 400 more steps when the music was on compared to when they didn't have the music on. And so we're thinking, well, wow. So they're getting more steps. Well, that means they're getting more activity, and that's good. (laughs) We like that. And the funny thing was, what was so funny, and we we found this almost with every music study, is they'll have, you know, they'll participate in the lesson with the music. The next day they come back or the next time we we, we collect data and there is no music, those kids invariably will say, turn the music on, or where's the music, or we missed the music, or put the music on. It is hilarious, and they like it, and they want it. We did a study here on campus with uh, some basketball classes and we had uh, a couple classes play basketball 30 minutes of basketball with music on and again they took about three to four hundred more steps they were in activity for about five more minutes uh, and then the kids that did have music on you know they, they weren't in I mean they still got plenty of activity but it wasn't as long and so music really is a, is a great tool that teachers can use to increase um, physical activity get more activity in. That is just a
0: a wonderful finding, David. I love that. And it could really translate in just a home life, too. If you want your kids to have more activity or spend more time on it, turn on some music. Right. That just extends it. And
1: and another study we did with one of my students, one of my master's students, is uh, she did junior high, and she, she collected data in a basketball class and a volleyball class. And what was funny is in the volleyball class, you know, you, you play a point and then there's, there's a couple seconds of downtime. And so as the music was playing, you'd see the kids dancing, <laughs> And it was hilarious, but that's activity. And they, they were moving and that's... Good. Ah, I love that,
0: because really that music does make you want to move more. Yeah. I've, I've found that right. in my own life right. that exercising to music just makes a huge difference. And, and
1: what's for, for me personally, there's, there's been plenty of wonderful outstanding research in, in physical activity settings, like in the, in the gym type of thing, and there's not there's some, but not as much in the physical education setting, so it's kind of a gold mine. There's a lot of, lot of opportunities out there, so it's a lot of fun stuff ahead.
2: Professor of Physical Education at BYU, David Barney, discussing the positive effect that music has on our children when combined with physical activities in the classroom and elsewhere. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.